That's it. Another round of applause at least. Of course, the band know that that's an applause for the Lord, but we're thanking them as well, aren't we? Wasn't that great? It was awesome. Thank you so much. So, um, lots to talk about today. Let me just uh, say, first of all, it always feels a little bit um, weird to do this, but uh, they're resources for the body of Christ, so I'm very glad to share them with you. The, the messages that we've been sharing over these last few weeks are messages about the hero's journey, the structure of story in the Bible that begins with a call, continues with a challenge, often, often pictured as a valley, and then finishing with the completion, which is victory and blessing and an abundance that we can share with other people. This, this model of the story of faith is articulated across every page of Scripture. And um, a couple of books that I've been privileged to share with the world help really get to grips with this. Many of you have said, I'd like to get more material on this. And if you talk to Becky, she'll show you a devotional commentary that will take you through the year as you look at every hero in the Bible. But perhaps you're a reader, like me, and um, Covenant and Kingdom would be a great place to start. Today's message on Joseph is found in there along with several others. And for those of you who are looking for a way to understand how to share story, we heard John today talking about testimony and the power of testimony, and how to share that story in such a way that it connects with people without making them feel uncomfortable, and then being able to share it with truth that sets them free. There's another book recently published called Speak Out that talks all about the hero's journey and all the ways in which we can use that in our faith. And again, if you talk to Karen or Becky at the welcome desk, they'll show you how to get hold of them if you can't afford to pay for them, then there's ways in which Apex will make them available to you. So, let's do this thing. Joseph. When you look at the first book in the Bible, you notice that there are some big characters in that first book. Most people would say perhaps that Abraham, along with his wife Sarah, are the main characters of the book. And that would be fair enough. I mean, Abraham is called the father of faith, is recognized by millions, actually billions of people around the world as the progenitor, as the, as the one who began the journey of faith for them. But when you look at the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and you count up the verses committed to the different characters in that book, you come up with a surprising conclusion. And that is that the most important person is Joseph. His is the longest story. His is the most detailed story. His is the story that particularly articulates the way in which the life of faith is to be carried out in the different circumstances that we encounter. And his life, rather than that of Abraham, is the life that's looked on as a kind of foreshadowing of the life of Jesus. Joseph is an amazing person. 
an incredible character in Scripture. One who, when we become familiar with this story and, and the, the, the details, the, the, the granular details of his, of his life and struggles, we, we begin to understand what it means to walk with God through the valley, through the challenge. The story is a, a fairly simple one, a fairly straightforward one, one that many people know. At the beginning of the story, Joseph is 17 years old. He is the 11th born son of Jacob. Jacob has, uh, has three wives, and um, his other brothers are sons of two of his earlier wives, but, but Rebecca, his, his, his love of his life, if you like, was unable to have children. Then she has Joseph, and then finally Benjamin. And for reasons only known to Jacob, Joseph was the favored son. Maybe it was because of the particular connection that he had with the mother of Joseph. Maybe it was because of the way that Joseph kind of grew up and became this remarkable character. But one way or another, the story of Joseph is a story that has a kind of classic feel to it. There's a, there's a preoccupied father who prefers one son in that preoccupation and in that, in that desire to, to favor that particular son. He, he sets up all kinds of dynamics within the family that are deeply destructive and dysfunctional. Those of you who come from dysfunctional backgrounds like me will take great comfort in the fact that heroes of the Bible come out of those kinds of places. I mean, there's not many more dysfunctional families than the families of the patriarchs of faith. They were a bunch of crooks and brigands, to be quite honest with you. So the story could easily be described, I mean, maybe if Jane Austen wrote it, it'd be pride, prejudice, and preoccupation. Joseph is a young man given to pride. His brothers are people who allow prejudice to define their behavior. And the father is so preoccupied that he barely notices anything. And the story begins with Joseph, a 17-year-old boy, given this remarkable gift of prophecy. He can see the things that God is going to do. And because he's a young man, he's immature, he's, he's irresponsible, he doesn't really know how best to share the gift in a way that is helpful and beneficial to the people around him. And so he offers these visions of his life and his future to people who hate him. We were binding sheaves of grain in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood up while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. What do you think that means, guys? <laughs> His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Then he shares another one. Listen, he said. His father's there at the time. Listen, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were all bowing down to me. 
Is it that I'm the center of the universe or what is that? His father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to you on the ground? Well, the answer to that from God's perspective is yes. But Joseph offers no reply because he's just a kid. He doesn't know. He perhaps could be better raised. He could be better disciplined. But you don't discipline irresponsibility you discipline defiance or rebellion. And he's not showing that at all. He's just a kid. What does he know? His father gives him a coat that indicates that he's not only the favored son, but he's considered to have the status of the firstborn son. The firstborn son is the surrogate father, and so they're given coats with long sleeves to indicate that manual labor is not their task, but the supervision of others. And so the youngest of the brothers is given the role of supervisor. And of course, Jacob sends him with his many colored coat with the long sleeves to go and find out what the boys are doing. They see him coming and they make a plan. Some of them want to kill him. Others don't want to quite go that far. Eventually what they do is they beat him up, they rough him up, they strip him of his many colored coat they throw him in a well and sell them to their cousins who happen to be slave traders. What a family history. The Ishmaelites take him to Egypt and there he's sold into the house of Potiphar who is the head of security for Pharaoh. Within the compound of Pharaoh's, uh, within the compound of Potiphar's household, there's various different places including the prison for the VIPs that I'm sure Joseph never imagined that he would be incarcerated within. You know the story. Potiphar's wife takes a shine to him. He's a very handsome, muscular young man. She tries to get him embroiled in a relationship, and he refuses her. And perhaps in her pique, she decides to accuse him of rape. Potiphar knows that this is not true, if there had been even the suggestion of the possibility that it was true, that would have been the end of the story. Joseph would not have continued. But in his anger at the situation, perhaps anger at himself, allowing the circumstances to arise, Potiphar knows that he has to remove Joseph from this hotbed of seduction. And so locks him up in the prison, and he becomes the trustee, the warden of the prison, begins to see that Joseph is a useful person to have around. And what you discover in every step is demonstration of this verse in Genesis 39, verse 2. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And he prospered. He prospered in every circumstance. He prospered as a slave. He prospered as a prisoner. One day soon he would prosper as the regent of Egypt. He's in the prison. The butler, the baker, the candlestick maker, they all get locked up. There's no candlestick maker. There's a, there's a, a butler. He's the, he's the kind of guy who tests everything before 
Pharaoh eats it. He's called the cupbearer to the king. The baker is the one who makes the food for the king. The king is obviously sick from some food that he's eaten. There's all kinds of suggestions, all kinds of conspiracy theories. You've never heard of those, have you? There's all kinds of conspiracy theories that are swirling around the royal court. And so the person who tastes the food so that the king doesn't get sick is locked away. And the one who made the food so that the king doesn't get sick is locked away because the suggestion is there must be a conspiracy between them to kill the king. And so they investigate the story and the outcome is as follows. Both of these men had dreams whilst they were in prison. Joseph being the trustee is the one who's bringing breakfast to them in the morning. He comes in, he noticed that they're downcast. He said, what? why are you downcast? I mean, you're only prisoners, likely to be executed any minute. They said, well, we both had dreams, and um, we don't quite know what it is. We, we the, the cupbearer says, you know, I, I saw myself squeezing grapes into the cup of the, of the king, and and the baker says, yeah, I, I saw myself carrying baked goods for the king and birds were eating the baked goods. Now, at the beginning of the story, Joseph, this young man, is sharing his gift, his prophetic gift, in a way that is untutored and immature. By now, maybe some 11 years later, he has grown a little bit. But he's not grown to the point where God finds him usable yet. He says to the butler and the baker, he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. In other words, he's saying, you know, God and me, we're, we're pretty tight, and, you know, I can probably do stuff for him. And so he gives them the interpretation, and the interpretation is great for the butler and terrible for the baker. He dies, and the butler goes free. And before he goes, Joseph says, remember me, I've been put here against my will, everything's gone wrong for me, it's not been a good life so far, and you could really help me as I've helped you. But of course, when he's back in the thick of things, the cupbearer, the butler, forgets about Joseph until... The king has his own dreams, dreams of withered wheat and wretched cattle devouring one another. He's so disturbed when he wakes up that he calls all the counselors of the court. They come in. He asks them to give him an interpretation. No one's able to do it. The butler says, for some reason, I remember meeting a young man. I forget where it was now. I think maybe it was a time when the king was not exactly fully excited about my presence. Maybe I was kind of dealing with a few things myself. And Anyway, I met with Joseph, and he was able to interpret my dream. Maybe he can do it. So they send for Joseph. They get him bathed. They get him shaved. They get him ready. Joseph has been languishing alone, unseen, ignored and forgotten for two years. 
something happens in Joseph's heart. The young man who saw the world revolving around him has gone. The young adult who saw himself and God as a tight package and clearly he could work for God if he wanted to. Even he's gone. Now, Joseph is a different kind of man. And that different kind of man becomes the man that God is able to use in the way first envisioned in the first prophecies. He's called before Pharaoh. We're in Genesis 41, verse 15. Pharaoh says, I've heard that you can interpret dreams. Joseph's response is fascinating. I cannot do it. I cannot do it. But God will give the interpretation that Pharaoh requires. And so he interprets that there are going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, that they should prepare, they should be proactive in understanding that these times of plenty are going to be the opportunity for Egypt and the people to survive the terrible years of poverty and privation, of famine and struggle. Pharaoh looks to his royal court and says, is there anyone among us in whom the Spirit of God lives like it does in this young man? And so invites him to be in the very throne room with him, to wear the insignia of royalty, to wear the clothes of the king, to go in the chariot of Pharaoh, so that whenever people see the Pharaoh's chariot, they, they see the regalia of royalty, they, they look to Joseph and they see the king. Joseph's life is transformed, and because of that, He's able to save his brothers, save his family. It's interesting, as you read the story, he's clearly struggling internally with what it is that he wants to do. It's one thing to forgive. It's another thing to recover from the levels of trauma that he's been through. But in time, he's able to get to the point of real release, and his brothers are welcomed with his father and household and they're saved from death in the famine. Now, most of you know that story. Some of you have heard that from me in previous sermons. But I thought today we'd, we'd find a way of kind of getting at it slightly differently. So I need two volunteers, if at all possible. Do I have two volunteers? I'll take Bird. And what was your name again, young man? Colin. Colin and Bird. If you'd come up here, uh, let's have a round of applause for Colin and Bird. So, um, Bird, if you could sit here, that would be great if you could sit there. Colin, uh, I want you in the middle over there, but I'm going to get you a, another chair if that's all right. Um, Colin's a a student at, um, at Dayton University. And if you're, a, if you're a college student, this coming Friday, 
We've called it rather, I mean, stereotypically, Friday Night Lights. And um, the team is going to be meeting at, um, at my house for tacos on Friday from 6.30 onwards, and we'll be hanging out with anyone of college age or college disposition. Okay. So, we'll have you as Joseph and you as God. Is that all right, Bert? Are you okay with that? Okay. Okay. I, I'm not quite sure that we've got... I don't think we've got quite the right regalia yet, but maybe we could, um, maybe we could just enhance the picture a little bit. Um, but I know it's a stereotype, but I think it would be great if you could wear a beard. Is that all right? <laughs> These go around your ears. And um, because you're a kind of young, hippie kind of dude, I thought something like this might be really cool. Is that all right? Um, so I think it probably... You can work it out. There you go. Um, and how are we doing over there with the beard? Is the beard working? That's good. The beard's slightly disconnected. Um, there's a coat hanger. There's another coat hanger. Um, let me have a look here. Is that good? You look awesome, brother. I think we need to... Just, there we go, that's much better. Get the label out of the way. Yeah, the label doesn't look quite as cool as it should do. There, oh, that looks marvellous. Thank you. And um, I think Joseph had a, a kind of a coat of many colours. If you could just run that one there. There we go. And the Lord obviously is resplendent in white. I, I don't know if you can get this over all of that. Can you try that? There we go, very good. Okay, so now we've got the Lord and we've got Joseph, okay? And um, at the beginning of the story, Joseph is most definitely at the center of the world. Yeah? Everybody agree with that? Yeah. And um, boy, doesn't Joseph look awesome? You can see why the Bible said he was handsome and well-made. <laughs> My life. Um, and so Joseph's at the center of the universe. I saw the sun and the moon and the 11 stars all orbiting me. And clearly, if you're at the center of your world, the Lord... The Lord is obviously on the outside. Now, what happens through the 11 years of slavery and incarceration is something that is really necessary for Joseph to be able to make the journey towards the hero's completion. He invites the Lord to come into the center with him. And Joseph says to the butler and the baker, he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me, tell me your dreams. So now we have God and Joseph at the center of the story. Now, here's the thing. That's what it's supposed to look like. 
But it's not supposed to look that way as that kind of process. It's not supposed to be Joseph inviting God to the middle. It's supposed to be God inviting Joseph to the middle. Now, this is really important. And the reason I'm doing it as a demonstration is so that you can see it. Because Joseph has to get to the point of realizing that if God is not God, then nothing's going to work. And so Joseph goes and, and sits or stands at the outside of his world and says to Pharaoh, I can't do it. Now, in the New Testament, there are all kinds of ways in which God, you don't have to keep on holding on to that beard if you don't want to, bird. Birdie beard, yeah, so you can just, that's right, great. Um, I'd hate for you to feel kind of embarrassed or uncomfortable or anything. In the last book of the Bible, in a letter written within the book of Revelation to one of the churches in Revelation, the church of Laodicea, the last letter to the final church that Jesus addresses in this book, he says this, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many people would like to do great things for God? Six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, maybe, maybe a dozen people in the congregation want to do great things for God. And the great thing is that that dozen, that dozen folks could probably change the world. It doesn't take a lot of people to change the world. It just takes God working through a person to change the world. And this is how it works. Somewhere along the line, you and I have got to get to the place where we're not at the center of our universe. We have to get to a place where through circumstance, difficulty, through the challenges of life, through the valleys that we go through, through the mentors that God sends us, through the revelation that he speaks to us directly, we get to the place where we say, of course it's not all about me. Of course it's not all about me. It's about him. And when you make that substitution of yourself for the Lord on the throne of your life, and I'm not talking to people who aren't Christians here, I'm talking to everybody, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. When you get to that place, you have to get to that place in the knowledge that that's good enough for you. It's good enough for God to inhabit your life as the very center, 
as the very, as the very foundational person defining who you are and what you do. It's not your personality. It's not your Enneagram type. It's not the things that you've learned about, your background, your history, your education, your status, your class. It has nothing to do with any of those things. It simply is the fact that God now defines who you are. And it may be that this is a kind of layered experience. All of us are like onions. We kind of go through layer after layer, and we think that we've resolved these things, and then we think, oh gosh, it's all over again. Am I, am I back to the beginning? Well, you're not back to the beginning. It's just God addressing the same issue in a different part of your life. Your work, your family, your marriage, your hopes and aspirations. Each layer is addressed in exactly the same way. Will you let me be God, says God. And when you let him be God, and if you are prepared, as Paul says in Romans, if you're prepared to go through the necessary suffering to make that possible, that you're shaken from your central place and put to the periphery with God at the center. If you're prepared to do that, then you will share in his glory, Paul says in Romans 8. We're co-heirs with Christ. And we will share all of these things if we're prepared to go through the suffering necessary to make it happen. Joseph says, I can't do it. But God can. And then God says, Joseph, you're ready. Come and sit next to me. I'll make you the regent of Egypt. I think we should give these young folks a wonderful round of applause, don't you? Feel free to keep hold of those until the end of the service. You can... You can take them and make everyone around you feel really jealous that you Thanks. have got them and they haven't. Sometimes, sometimes we need to see it to get it. Did you see the movement taking place? Did you see what it was that God wants to do through your challenges and difficulties? You see, here's the thing. Suffering is not redemptive. Suffering is an enemy of humanity. I know that because Jesus relieved suffering on every occasion. And when we get to heaven, there is no suffering. So suffering is not redemptive. There's only one person suffering that has redeemed us, and that is the suffering of Jesus. So there's no redemption in your suffering, but there is transformation. And that transformation will bring about the change that you're looking for and that God longs to see. And it'll happen at different layers. You know, the big enemies of most of us are guilt, fear, and shame. And because of our different dispositions and backgrounds, our 
different histories and stories, we'll tend to have one of those that'll be the big one for us, and that'll be the one that we wrestle with for most of our lives. Guilt is the one for me. And I'm long in the tooth, and I'm old in years, and so guilt is not something that I struggle with these days, because I've heard the word, there is no condemnation, so many times that I now believe it. And so it's been a shock to me recently that fear and shame have manifest themselves in feelings of insecurity and insignificance. I think part of that is the journey that Sally and I have been on with her on this mission trip to England that seems to be incredibly fruitful. And we're seeing breakthroughs. She spoke to me this morning at breakfast. There seem to be breakthroughs everywhere. But being in that place that I've not been in before has exposed me to feelings of insecurity and insignificance. On Friday, I had the opportunity to grasp it and to see it. My new motorbike, a Triumph, beautiful machine, was given a, a, a dealership recall, a manufacturer's recall. So I had to take the bike in because obviously when it's a recall, you've probably got to go and do it. And the day that was scheduled was Friday. And when I looked at the weather forecast when I first got the schedule, it looked great. 70 degrees and sunshine, thank you Jesus, I'll be riding my way to Columbus, I'll just feel like it's just the best day of my life. I'll go and hang out at that great big motorcycle store and just decide what it is that I'd like one day, maybe never, but just fun stuff. And then of course as the week wore on, it looked like the weather was getting worse and worse. And the projected time for leaving didn't look good at all. And so I called them and said, maybe I'll come later when, when the, the rain's gone. And they said, yeah, sure. So I set out at 2 o'clock, expecting to get there, you know, nice and casual and ready. And as I was getting towards Columbus, where the roadworks are, I'm sure you've been on that particular part of the I-70, I hit the final cell of the tropical depression. Somehow, that little thunder cell decided to hang on for me. <laughs> and there I was in an absolute torrent. I couldn't see out of my helmet. I'm driving along like I'm running with the buffalo. I've got 18 wheelers all around me. And I hit the roadworks and they've stripped off the tarmac in strips and laid cement that we may as well just call it ice. And so as I'm driving along, my back wheel begins to fishtail out at 70 miles an hour. I get it back again. And I'm surrounded by vehicles. I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to continue. I just, and I'm saying, Jesus, help me. As I'm continuing, I can feel the bike lurching from one side to another. I've got to get off the road. I can't, at the moment, find a way because the roadworks have taken up the hard shoulder and I can't get onto the side of the road. I 
There are no bridges that I can get underneath. And so I take the first opportunity to get off and I pull in at a gas station and I'm absolutely shaking. No idea how I made it out of that. I got the GPS to take me to the store via roads that are not highways. Got the change, drove home. And as I'm driving home, of course, the rain's gone and the road's great. But I'm all of a shake. And fortunately, a friend calls me and kind of guides me home just with, just with conversation and chatter. I get home and I'm literally shaking. And I say to the Lord, what's that? And I heard the words from Coldplay, Fix You. Lights will guide you home and ignite your bones. I will try to fix you. And I said, okay, what? He said, did you feel insecure? I said, yeah, just about as insecure as I've ever felt. Did you feel insignificant? Yeah, because... I didn't know whether those truck drivers could see me even. Did you make it through? Yeah. Was it your skill that got you through? No. How about you let me be God of your insecurities? and your feelings of insignificance. And then maybe we'll be able to work again. And so I said, sure, you're right. I've let you be God of my guilt, and you've spoken words of release and freedom to me. And now, unbidden, these feelings have arisen in my heart, and of course, I've tried to do the thing that I've always tried to do, and that's just muscle through it. Be strong. Be Mike Breen, the courageous one. And so you had to take me to a place where I couldn't possibly imagine Mike Breen, the courageous one, defeating an 18-wheeler on the I-70. Joseph languishing in his dungeon was alone, forgotten, and afraid. He wondered whether he would ever get out alive. But something happened in that moment, in that phase of his life. And what happened was that God took the throne again. And because Joseph was prepared to let him have the throne again, God said, 
you've overcome. And so you can share the throne with me. Do you see this? Does this make sense to you? This is the journey of every believer. This is the journey of every Christian. This is the journey of all of our lives. And God is giving you the opportunity right now for him to use you in such a way that you've never seen him use you before. Because right now, there are people who struggle and suffer, who need someone who can identify with their struggle and their suffering. Right now, there are people out there who are lost and alone, and they need someone who can identify with their sense of lostness and their sense of isolation. Right now, there's a world careering, careening towards destruction. And God needs representatives who'll, who'll be invited by him into the center of their life because he's already there. And because he's already there, he can use them as he puts his arm around them and allows his power to come through their weakness and change the circumstances, the situations, the people and places that they touch. Do you think it could be you? I think it could. Ordinary people who have God on the throne. Let's pray together. Lord, I freely admit to you that the place where I usually function is me in charge and you helping and blessing what I do. Thank you, Lord, that Joseph's story tells us that you were with him and that he prospered because of your presence. But thank you, Lord, that Joseph's story reveals that there's more than personal prospering that you have for our lives. There's the powerful transformation that touches the world through us. Lord, we want to go beyond the prospering to the power. We want to go beyond the knowledge of your comforting presence, blessing what we do, to your presence inviting us into the very throne room where because of our identity we receive the authority and because of the authority you can use your power through us to bring healing, deliverance, transformation, resurrection, new life. Lord, we want this. We want it, Lord, for the world around us that we've sat at the center of. We say to you, Lord, today that you are Lord and we're available. And we say it in the strong and good name of Jesus and all God's people say. Now, you know the score, you know the way it works. If this word is for you today, then do not leave this place without representing that in the prayer of your body. 
Prayer doesn't take place just in our heads. Prayer doesn't take place just with our mouths. Prayer is the articulation of our whole life. And so today, if this time is a time for you to say, Lord, you're at the center and I'm available, then you come. The prayer team will not pray with you or speak to you if you're on the periphery of the stage. If you want prayer about that, then come to the more central places. But you know whether this is your word. It's been my word and you've heard my confession and testimony. Today is the moment for you to decide. So you come.